Kia ora e te whanau. you are listening to the panel on RNZ National with me, Guy and Espiner, in for Wallace Chapman this week. Well, here's a multi-choice question on the new school curriculum for you. Maybe we can chuck this to the panel. Peter Dunn and Georgina Stiliano with us this afternoon. Which of the following subjects are mentioned in the new school science curriculum? A, physics, B, chemistry, C, biology, D, none of the above. Peter, Georgina? Uh, yes, none, <laughs> none of, of the, the above, above. Okay. worryingly so. All right, well that has left some science teachers uh, pretty shocked. Instead, science will be taught, this is a draft curriculum, right? This is early stage stuff, but this is the plan um, so far, that it'll be taught from five concepts, the earth system, biodiversity, food, energy and water. Um, infectious diseases and also something called at the cutting edge. Now these uh, details are in an early draft of the science curriculum that was leaked by teachers who felt it could lead to appalling declines in student achievement and we're going to be talking about that in just a second with the uh, Institute of Physics uh, Council Chairman David Houston. So we'll get to that in just a second. But we're going to start this hour with house prices and a 10% plunge over the last year. So if you thought the bottom was reached in that market and it was safe to get back on the market and sell your house, this might have you thinking again. The average house value has fallen 130000 now from the peak of the market. And that was um, back some time ago in 2021. But it is still higher, $180,000 higher than when COVID hit around March 2020. Let's talk to Nick Goodall, Goodall now. He's Head of Research at Core Logic, who's been doing the numbers. Good afternoon to you, Nick. Kia ora, Guy. So the floor, we'd been told it had been reached and these numbers would seem to put some doubt on that. Yeah, exactly right. I think yeah, there's been a bit of a queue up of people in the last few months to to call the bottom of the market, but it does look like it might be a little bit premature. There are still, you know, acceleration of the downward trend in some areas, in particular Auckland, um, but there is a moderation in some areas, including Wellington. So I think one of the other key things from the latest data is probably the variability we're seeing. It's not all one trend. It's not all one market. We're starting to see some variable results, and that's probably typical of, of a market trying to find a floor. Yeah, I mean, interest rates must be a big factor in this. Um, we may have, may have peaked on the OCR, on the official cash rate from the Reserve Bank, but I see banks, um, you know, a couple moved quite recently and, and put them up a little further, and it's not uncommon to see a 7 or even an 8 in front of it. Yeah, that's absolutely right, and I think that's the factor in many ways. The fact that we've seen such a large increase over a relatively short period of time for the official cash rate, and that's flowed through to mortgage interest rates, that is definitely squeezing affordability for anyone trying to buy a home and for those rolling over onto new terms. But I also think that, yeah, the signalling from Reserve Bank, what was it, five weeks ago, we've reached the OCR peak, there shouldn't be too many mortgage interest rates um, increases to come on, and that sort of brought a bit of confidence back to the market, and maybe that was one thing that people overestimated in its impact to, um, to creating that floor of the market, which we don't think quite arrived. Peter, Georgina, you uh, in Wellington, uh, I mean, I've been looking for a house up here in Auckland and I, people are coming back to auction rooms and mm. it seems like, you know, that, well, they felt maybe because it was the, us in the media telling them that the corner had been reached. What are you guys seeing in the capital? Well, in my neighbourhood, there's more homes going up for sale now than there were a year ago. 
I'm not sure how quickly they're moving, though. Um, but the thing I, I was going to ask, Nick, was um, I'm not sure. It may have been him. I heard someone earlier this morning saying that they thought we were about two to three months away from prices starting to fall. And I just wondered how that fitted in with um, some of the other comments today from economists about how we look like we're heading for a double-dip double recession and the, the fact that government debts are blown out by $5 billion more than budgeted for, etc. What impact those figures have on the overall scene and, and whether, in fact, we are at a point where in the next few months prices are going to plateau and perhaps turn upwards? Yeah, I think that's a key thing the Reserve Bank's talking about now. They're saying, you know, we're at a wait-and-see time. We've had a very strong and fast tightening cycle. Now's the time to wait and see how this plays out as more people roll on to higher rates. What does that do to their spending um, and the the economy and GDP? And if we do start to see a weakness there, then there's always a chance that they have to stimulate the economy by reducing the OCR. On the flip side, if we continue to get hold of inflation um, and, and the economy performs quite well, then we might see those... So if we don't get hold of inflation and the economy perform as well, then we'll definitely see that OCR stay quite high. Mm. And I think interest rates do play a big part. Mm. So depending on where that goes, that could definitely lead to the different performance of the market, you know, plateauing or, or dropping a little bit further, or maybe some growth even occurring later on this year. And will the onset of the election period mm. have any impact on that? Yeah, look, I think the election generally brings uncertainty, especially when you see the polls as tight as they are mm. right now. What that leads to in the immediate future is a slowdown in transacting as people sit back and wait to see what's going to happen. And then, of course, it'll depend on the result. National win, generally more favourable for property investments. We might see increased demand. Labour win, and we might still we might see people less active and maybe even see some people sell out of the market. So, yeah, it could, it could change things. It'll really depend on what the big parties campaign on. And, of course, that result on uh, October 14, is it? Yes, October 14. Georgina, I mean, you know, National being quite explicit. I mean, it's not only just sort of signalling and sentiment, is it? It's actually, we will, they're saying, you mm. know, um, bring back these tax incentives or however you want to phrase it for, for landlords and, and do several other things around the bright line test and things. So, you know, there would be material policy uh, gains for, you know, certainly for investors and potentially for, you know, those buying into the market, right? Yeah, I mean, Nick, I have a slightly different view on this. It, it wasn't all that long ago that I was a, a renter and I kind of feel like the house prices needed to come down. We were probably paying too much for what are often quite crappy mm. homes. Um, so I'm, I'm not a real doomsdayer on, on, on the house prices front. It sort of goes over my head as being a bit of an ebb and flow. Um, and, and I suppose at a very simplistic level, it, it simply doesn't affect me because I'm not trying to sell my home right now. <laughs> um, uh, why, why would you? But yeah, I mean, to Guyon's point, there, there, there obviously will be um, those incentives, but they're, they're not an overnight. It's not like you switch a switch on a um, you know flick on a switch and it all just um, bounces back. Um, and as we saw, that that also comes with some unintended consequences. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't really find this ten percent uh, decline earth shattering. Yeah, I think that's fair. It's a good point in terms of. You know, if the government did make changes, if there was a change in government. The other thing we should note here is that the debt-to-income restrictions, mm. which are politically mm. neutral, are likely to come in in March and April, and that will, again, limit investor activity. So even if they get a bounce back from um, the, the, the um, bringing back of the interest deductibility op- option, um, well, they're likely to see their demand capped by DTI restrictions coming in too. So yeah, I don't think that there's going to be a dramatic change from either government. Um, because there's other factors that are going to weigh too heavily on the market mm. and might limit any growth. So if you put, if you put your crystal ball 
in front of you at the moment, Nick, and we were having this conversation a year from now, what would you be expecting to be saying to us? Yeah, I think we're setting up for, you know, a different phase of growth. You know, it's probably one that tracks more similarly to household income as opposed to the, what, four-decade average where it's been about 6 to 7% per annum. I think there's been a number of fundamental shifts in the market which now mean that we're not going to see the same runaway growth. Um, interest rates are at a level when you measure them against house prices that, you know, on average 50% of household income has to go towards servicing an 80% LBR mortgage. And that's, that's hmm. the worst it's ever been and won't improve unless prices fall further, incomes grow dramatically, or interest rates drop dramatically, and no one's expecting any of those three things. So I think we're in for a, a more stable growth period um, following the next you know, six or nine months. Thanks very much for your time this afternoon, Nick. Nick Goodall there uh, from CoreLogic. He's a head of research there, so he's uh, the man to talk to about where the housing market is heading. And just on those numbers out today, uh, 10% below uh, a year ago and you know some talk about whether the floor has been reached. Now let's get back to this discussion about the science curriculum. I jumped the gun a little bit on, on this one, didn't I? I read out this very fancy <laughs> intro that so I was shocked. very, very uh, proud of and then realised that I'd actually um, <laughs> had, had to go back and uh, go back to school. I thought really. you sc- sc- covered it very skillfully. Uh, do you think so? Yeah, it's I all in the recovery. It just sounded like a teaser, you see. Yeah, yeah, well, maybe it was. Maybe <laughs> I did it on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're talking about the new school curriculum. It's a draft, but it doesn't... Sp- uh, specifically mentioned physics, chemistry and biology and uh, our education correspondent John Gerritsen he's very good at his job actually, he had this story this morning, um, it's been leaked out by teachers who have been concerned about it and said well, what's going on here so there are these five new concepts, I'll run through them again the earth system, biodiversity, food energy and water, infectious diseases and something called at the cutting edge, I'm not quite sure that, what, what that is but they're going to wrap and weave um, you know, chemistry, biology and physics through that, let's talk to David Houston who is with the New Zealand Institute of Physics Education Council Chairman. Kia ora, good afternoon to you David. Kia ora Colin. What do you make of this? Um, well it's come as a bit of a surprise to the community. Um, it, it has been, as you indicated, um, has been leaked out um, from, the, from the, the testing schools. Um, I guess we are surprises that um, the explicit teaching of fundamental ideas in physics, chemistry particularly, and biology as well, and earth and space science are just not present in that curriculum statement. Um, And that's a very significant change from what we've got at the moment. Yeah, I mean, are they being, are they buried in innovative ways here? I mean, are there ways that you could weave that in? Or is it just, should we be old school about this and it's physics and it's chemistry and it's biology? Well, I think you can have your cake and eat it. Um, I think that uh, it's We've got a current curriculum that has often been criticised for its lack of detail, but this is a very high-level document with, with, as you've indicated, contexts that are running through it from year one to 13. Um, and teachers and schools would be expected to, you know, to deliver on those, on those contexts. But it, it would also be a, very helpful if um, progressions of what students should be understanding and learning about as they go through the curriculum is actually outlined, because you don't want to leave these things up to chance. Um, if you actually know of good ways to deliver um, learning to, to, to young people, then we should actually be using you know, the most modern techniques we've got and the most modern understandings uh, in order to do that. And I, I guess that what people that have shared this information with me have indicated is that they're concerned that, that, that there will be massive inconsistency between um, schools and between teachers. Um, 
yeah, so that, so that that's probably where people are feeling at the moment. Peter, well, look, I, I agree with with David. I think it is a case of if you if you can have your cake and eat it too. If these subjects can be woven through those sort of um, headings that were announced before, but I heard earlier this afternoon the Minister of Education say that biology, physics and chemistry would be part of the of the new curriculum. Now, I don't know whether you know, David, whether she was uh, making a definitive statement or, or a sort of wishful optimism that they would be retained, but it seems to me that if you can retain those core elements within the sort of the, and I don't like to use the word the story, but the sort of the framework that you're trying to, to um, uh, weave for students, then that is a win-win, as you say. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that I haven't heard the, the comments from the Minister. Um, we've, we've been involved in a, in a physics conference here in Auckland. Um, and I, I think you can have those things, but I'd, I'd also be interested in, in you know, in, we haven't had a detailed analysis of this about the relevancy of the context. Those contexts mm. that Brian indicated are, are, are important contexts, um, but are, are they the ones that are going to heavily engage students? Mm. Um, mm. Have, have the students actually been involved in that? Um, and, you know, I mean, I would imagine things like climate change, for example, are still going to exist in 15 or 20 years when this curriculum will end up being replaced by something else. But um, at the moment, what teachers are able to do is actually bring science alive through the context that they find most engaging for the learners in front of them, and we're empowered to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that this is that these are actually, in some senses, quite narrow contexts. Mm-hmm. Um, we're at the moment, we're at the moment, we're actually open. Uh, myself as a science teacher, I can actually uh, drive the curriculum in a particular direction, but I have to meet the objectives that have been set in terms of the underlying concepts. Um, and that's quite a liberating um, experience for a teacher, and that's not the case um, in many countries in the world. This one is a, is a further step in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a direction that you know people people are a little bit concerned about, I guess would be fair to say. Georgina? I mean, I'm genuinely hoping that it's just implicit that the, the three core science subjects are part of the curriculum, but I feel like... I'm hoping that it means that they're just trying to teach science with a more relatable, real-world, um, practical side of it. I, I'm, this Science was not the subject that I excelled in at school, and I have never had to do a chemical titration um, since year 12. So I think but perhaps if I was taught what real-world application that might have. So I feel like that's the intent, but this is awful timing for the government when they're under mm. under the pump with um, declining numeracy and literacy and education and, and a certain demographic feeling like everything is going a little bit woke and wishy-washy. <laughs> I hate using that word, but you know, you know what I mean, David. And I feel like that's probably having this double-down effect with um, people almost seeing the worst in the curriculum. Yeah, I think, I, I think that that's right. I, I... I mean, I, I certainly don't consider those contexts woke or wishy-washy. They're, they're, they're very serious science. And, and that, that's another challenge. I mean, I draw an analogy with, that, with the numeracy project that was brought in 15 or so years ago. Um, the intentions of that were, were very sound. Mm. The, the, the philosophy was very good. The end result was quite disastrous for a large number of children mm. um, because often these things are not resourced properly. Mm. Um, and so it's very easy to make statements uh, on a piece of paper then you have to think about how they're going to be implemented. Um, and and we know the history of these things is that resourcing is a challenge. But, but isn't, the issue, isn't the issue here too about giving a practical application to those disciplines? So 
I mean, physics always scared the hell out of me because I didn't really understand it. But, if I, but I'm sure if I'd had some sort of practical framework as to what it meant and how it was applied, that might have helped my understanding. Isn't, isn't that part of this whole challenge too? To, to While you teach the core principles and the core subjects, you also give some practical application to how they can be used in a, in a meaningful way. Oh, I, I agree with that completely. And, and I mean, uh, our teaching force hopefully are trained, and I, and I know certainly in the work that I've done, and that's what's happening, um, you know, and a lot of the work we've done at this conference is, is sort of um, illuminated that for a lot of teachers. That The question is, like, are those contexts that are listed, are they the ones to illuminate mm. physics, for example? Um, I mean, climate change, the science behind climate change is, is complex, uh, is not straightforward, um, and it needs to be unpacked quite carefully. Um, and so at the moment we've got a situation where we can choose contexts um, with this, we're, we're sort of narrowed down. Now, it, it might be that what we can actually do is move to, uh, you know, some sort of basis where actually contexts are, uh, you know, a little bit more. Maybe these contexts are, uh, in some sense, they're huge contexts, but in another sense, they're very narrow. Mm-hmm. Thanks very much for your time this afternoon, David. David Houston there, who is the Education Council Chairman at the New Zealand Institute of Physics. A lot of feedback coming in on that one on 2101 or emailing us at the panel at rnz.co.nz. Uh, this listener says they've ruined the teaching of English and maths, so why not ruin mm-hmm. science? Mm-hmm. Let nothing stand in the way of New Zealand's trajectory towards third world status, says Julian, who's just uh, texted me in on the panel this afternoon uh, getting quite a lot of feedback um, Peter and Georgina around that although not everyone um, agrees this one um, from Delwyn saying I love this pathway into science through real world subject the building real world subjects the building blocks will still be there we need to let this evolve and not be frightened of progress I can't help but agree with you Georgina though that politically it's it's not going to be an easy yeah, sell I just I mean, want just for a small caveat, I wasn't suggesting that the contexts themselves were woke or wishy-washy. No, I, was I know it was exactly add what you mean. The, the, There's the a lot sentiment. of old-school sentiment That's there, right. isn't it, that, yes. we're, that we're dismissing, um, you know, these bedrocks of society. In a, t- a time of great change, when you start, you know, we you know, we did have uh, a guy called Ernest Rutherford who's on the $100 mm. note. You know, it's kind of like... That's right. The, and we're, yeah. we're still in the middle of this debate around mm. structured literacy, right? And whether we teach our children to read using phonics or whether we teach them to cue, like here's a picture of a snake and that's the letter S. Oh, the word must mean snake. And we basically know now that that's the wrong way to have gone about it. So I just think it sort of feels like it's just this pile on this pressure in the education mm. sector and then we've got the pressure in the health sector. So politically, I'm really surprised they put this bloody thing out at all. Yeah, so am I. Actually, okay, here's a bit of uh, I hadn't got a clever segue for this one because we are massively changing tack. <laughs> Portugal, uh, it's one of the most liberal and progressive countries in the world, right, when it comes to things like drug policies and that sort of thing. But while the police turned a blind eye to drug use to a large degree, just don't try and take a boombox to the beach because playing loud music on the beach in Portugal could land you with a fine of up to 64,000 New Zealand dollars. Ah, that's uh, they're taking this pretty seriously, Georgina. <laughs> I actually love this. (laughs) I am among the humans who suffer from sort of auditory sensitivity. I literally leant over to a man in in the cafe next to me last week and said, excuse me, sir, sir, can you please stop clicking that pen so loudly? So I love this. I'm all for this. If you want to go to the beach, we should be about being in nature, listening to the birds and the breeze and the sea, and also music. What if people are playing terrible music?
find them. I'm yeah, all for it. Yeah, well, that's true. You know, it depends on what you're playing at that no, volume. Good on I, Portugal. I can't see you taking your beanbox down at the beach, Peter, but I don't no, know. Could no, no. Um, and I, I'm sort of very sympathetic to this idea, although not to the tune of $64,000. <laughs> it's not a tune anyone wants <laughs> no. to hear. But, uh, I, but I think, I, I, you know, we, it's not just the beach. We've all been in situations where we just wish that the, the group next to us would just tone the noise down. Be it, yeah, do you know, know what gets me? And I hear this, even. Yeah, I, I hear this in the Auckland office here at Radio New Zealand where I am now, is you hear a car and it just is absolutely booming. You think, mm. gosh, someone's, you know, um, broken into this guy's stereo and stolen his car. I mean, it's just extraordinary, like, the, the, the volume that you get with, with cars. You, you, you're hearing the music and then you, you know, you're looking around for the source of it. But it's funny, I, you know, I know exactly what you mean, that sort of boom, boom, boom yeah. thing. And I was walking down the road the other day and someone was coming towards me with... Um, orchestral music playing from their car in equal volume and it sounded vastly different to the boom 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 it still sounded a bit loud but it didn't sound nearly as obnoxious that's right so basically it's a question of musical taste rather than volume there's a a bit of that and and we haven't they haven't specified apparently what the decibel level Mm. is so you can see there's uh, there's some contention Mm. there Um, and before we leave this because it is interesting what um, you get fined for and what you can do in different countries but I I couldn't resist this one which was in this same story um, that was mentioned and it's um, Dubrovnik which is a great place mm. to go if you get a chance to go to uh, Croatia. Um, they're going to find people uh, nearly 500 New Zealand dollars for tourists who drag their luggage down the cobble street because it <laughs> makes too much noise. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, if you're living around an area that's the sort of um, tourist thoroughfare, it would it would drive you it would drive you insane. And Italy does it in in parts of Sorrento, right? They won't allow tourists to walk around um, in in skimpy bikinis. So I'm like, actually, this is sort of what makes traveling mm. traveling, right? This mm. experiencing other cultures. Um, so I, I quite right, so like it. If, if you're saying if you want to bankrupt yourself. Get into a bikini, drag, <laughs> you, your, drag your luggage get down, your wheelie bag. D- yeah. down to the beach <laughs> and uh, start playing yeah. whatever music the police don't like. Yeah, I can think of a few. And, and then that hope that the media. police van that turns up is <laughs> a real a police van and not a plumber. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's good to have some clever people on the panel um, who can wind all this together for me as I read the intros in the wrong order. Um, thanks very much. Great to have you with us today, Peter and Georgina. Heaps of feedback. Um, should we get to some of this before the headlines just quickly um let's do this yeah on the cost of living um getting a lot of feedback in on that in terms of what you're prepared to pay in the supermarket getting some texts in actually um several too many to go into it now saying they've had exactly the same experience of just watching mm. and heartache as people put mm. vegetables back and it is it is a hard thing to watch and a hard hard um Hard thing to do. Let's go to Marama Tipoli now with the headlines.